Nobody loves you like Jesus. Wasn't that fun? Oh, that was delightful. The kids we can't thank because they're already gone, but uh, that was not only enjoyable, it tells me two things. Who said Christians can't have fun when they're rejoicing in the truths of the Lord? And the second thing is if that didn't just light your fire, you know, with enthusiasm and rejoicing, your wood is wet, <laughs> which is not likely to happen this time of the year. I wasn't planning to say this until a little bit earlier, and maybe it's just a way of saying the Lord prompted me to offer a word of encouragement, because sometimes in life, many times in life, we just feel like, what difference does it make what I'm doing right now, whether it's on my job or my role in the family? <clears throat> Some of you, and I was reflecting on the really remarkable, to me, diversity of professions and uh, roles that we play, that you play, uh, in life, and you're here as brothers and sisters in Christ, representing the Lord in, uh, in those opportunities. Uh, some of you are in more obvious positions of significance, and I say only more obvious. Uh, in medicine, or healthcare, if you will, law enforcement, like Coast Guard or police, education, uh, business, if you, have a, you own a business, you're in a more prominent role, and you have something to say about how you're going to uh, convey your, your, uh, your uh, values as a Christian. But some of us are in less, humanly speaking, significant roles. We're in quiet corners where we're just as important to God as the people who are in the more significant, humanly speaking, roles. I think about people who are working behind the scenes this morning in our church, as well as our, our uh, worship team up here. They practice, you don't probably know this, in the week, and then they practice before the service. We've got our people in the different uh, grade levels here taking care of some of your kids and in the nursery, and I prayed this morning that God's peace would reign in the nursery. <laughs> Not always that way. I want mom or dad. <laughs> so all practical things, but people who all are part of the service of the church, even today, making things run decently in an order, which is what the scriptures call us to do. And last but not least, and I'm probably overlooking some aspect of this by way of illustration, you moms and dads who are committed to raising your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. In a society, and I say that uh, <clears throat> with deference to people who are conscientious Christian educators, in a society where we are seeing a political agenda encroaching in the areas of education where mom and dad don't really necessarily have the last say anymore. In fact, they may not have any say at all, depending on what's on the agenda. So it's an uphill battle to raise your children in the nurture and admi admonition of the Lord in those contexts. I'm not trying to make a sweeping generalization, <clears throat> but those are warning signs of, of what is more to come. So your role the point is very significant because you are raising the next generation. The classic illustration of that in history is a lady whose name was Susanna. I can't believe it, but uh, I know some of you have done a good job of, of uh, uh, being fruitful and multiplying and replenishing the earth, but Susanna and her husband had 19 children, and she was very conscientious in making sure that their children were raised in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Her last name was Wesley. Susanna Wesley was the mother of Charles and John Wesley and others. So I'm trying to say all this to say, you are here in your, your years here and your place in life for such a time as this. That's not just for Esther, it's for you, it's for me. And we're all here this morning for such a time as this. Do you believe that? You're not here by accident. You're here by divine appointment because God wants to do a work in you and through you to touch the lives of other people. And we have to go back again and again to making sure we never forget the inviolable truth of passages like Galatians where it says, don't be weary in well-doing, for in due time you will reap if you don't lose heart. So that's meant to be a word of encouragement. That's not really what we're talking about this morning, but I think it's a very important preface to what we're talking about this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for you. 
you are the source from whom all our blessings flow. And I know it's very easy for me to overlook and take for granted things that I'm just used to enjoying as blessings. Living in a part of the world where it's absolutely beautiful. People come here for vacations. <laughs> and we look at your beauty all around us and uh, just can rejoice in what we have. And still, even though we're living in somewhat, we're living in increasingly dangerous times in terms of the freedom to uh, practice our faith outside of our halls of worship in the public square, we still have an amazing amount of freedom to do that. So, Lord, may we continue, as we talked about last month, make the most of every opportunity as we were admonished in Ephesians 5 and be people who really exercise the privilege we have to live in such a time as this. Thank you, Lord, for the fellowship of the saints, the truth of your word written in our heart language. We don't have to have somebody translate the book to us because it's written in Latin and we don't understand Latin. It's been translated faithfully by your servants through the years. We're recipients of it. We've probably got a stack of study Bibles in cases, many cases in our homes. So, Lord, you blessed us with resources and financial blessings. Even when we don't feel like we're rich, uh, a lot of us probably have large screen TVs at home. And we have, if not one, two or three cars. And other things that it won't take time to enumerate. May we not overlook the fact that we are a blessed people. And in comparison to much, a, a large part of the rest of the world, we're all pretty wealthy. Thank you, Lord, that that's not the definition of our significance. Our significance is in the fact that we are rich in Jesus Christ. We are your children. We are joint heirs with Christ. And somehow, in a way that's mysterious, we're even called <laughs> as saints who are seated in the heavenlies. So, Lord, may we be grateful saints this morning for what you have given to us and what you continue to bless us with. Father, we pray that your word will be rightly divided by your servant, readily received by each one of us as it needs to be applied in our hearts, whether it's for comfort in hard times, conviction when we're being careless, clarity, Lord, when we need your wisdom. We thank you, Lord, that your word and your Holy Spirit are here for all occasions. In Jesus' name, amen. See this book? This heavy theological tome? It's written by a friend of ours. He used to be a neighbor. He's with the Coast Guard. He's been relocated to uh, the Bay Area of California. But it's a book called Poppy, the Preparedness Pup. He has a, he has a dog named Poppy. And a number of years ago, he wrote this book, particularly for children, but I think all of us are young at heart. And it's meant to uh, help people understand how to be prepared in a variety of different kinds of natural disasters, whether they be earthquakes, hurricanes, tsunamis. Maybe we can add tropical storms for those who are in California, like our youngest son and daughter. But th the motto is, don't be scared, be prepared. How many of you have heard that slogan in some other context before? It's not original with him, and I don't think he's borrowing a copyrighted thing. But it's a cute little book with a lot of uh, illustrations by a friend of his who made the graphics. And if you, uh, if you want to place an order, I get 10%. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but he, ha he, has been, uh, he has been given the opportunity through the Coast Guard to talk to kids in schools about don't be scared by these different things that could scare you, but be prepared. So you think, well, what has that got to do with this morning? I submit to you that as we open the scriptures to 2 Peter chapter 3, a fitting title is, Don't Be Scared, Be Prepared. 2 Peter chapter 3, if you have your Bibles or your smartphones, I invite you to turn there. I think even though it's going to take a little bit of time, I might just not be able to resist the temptation to read the chapter, which isn't that long, but there's, there's, so, much, there's so much good truth in this passage. 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter writes, Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as a reminder, I'm reading from NIV, to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. Everybody wants your mind today. Someone said, whoever controls the media controls the culture. And culture is going to be a reflection of how we are trained to think if we are allowing ourselves to be conformed to this world rather than to the scriptures. So he's saying, I'm reminding you to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. 
I want you to recall the words spoken in the past, first of all, by the holy prophets. What's that? The Old Testament. And the commandment given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. What's that? The New Testament. All of which, of course, at this point has not been written yet. Most of it has. Peter, we figure, is writing this somewhere between 65 and 68 because we consider his martyrdom to be about 68 AD. So he's coming to the end of his life and he knows it. But some of the scriptures have been written, most of them I would say. We'll get to that a little bit later. What he's pointed out is take the scriptures seriously. We've got all this counsel of God from the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I like this phrase that really shows us how they harmonize. The Old, the, the, uh, the old Testament is in the, well, let's start with the New Testament is in the Old concealed. And the Old Testament is in the New revealed. We have a friend, Dr. Walter Martin, who is a really stout, strong uh, evangelical Bible scholar of the Old Testament. He, he likes to get up in a church and say, uh, I, I've read the New Testament. He's an Old Testament scholar. And I like it. It sounds a lot like the Old Testament. He's trying to make a point by rattling our cages that the Old Testament and the New Testament, they go together. They don't just separate these. We have, I remember my Old Testament prof in seminary saying a lot of us are guilty of being practicing Marcionists. Uh, for most of us today, that term doesn't even mean anything, but the Marcionites, the Marcionites didn't think that the Old Testament was relevant anymore. They just basically threw it out. He's trying to point out the whole counsel of God is important, and it goes together in the ways that we talked about and more. So Peter's reminding us of this continuity of the Scriptures in the Old and the New. Now he says, first of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? Ever since our fathers died, or depending on your translation, fell asleep, which is a euphemism for death, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of the creation. But they deliberately forget or are willingly ignorant of this fact that the heavens long ago by God's word came into existence, and the earth was, was formed out of water and by the water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed, talking about the flood of Noah. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not forget this one thing, Dear friends, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come, and it will come like a thief in the night. The heavens will appear with a roar, will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Some of you who are old enough to remember a folk, uh, folk uh, music trio, Peter, Paul, and Mary, go ahead, show me your age. Remember one of their songs? God told Noah, build me an ark. There's going to be a fire, not a flood next time. Pretty biblical, the folk singing there. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and, thought-provoking phrase here, and speed its coming. Hmm, that we have something to say about the timing. God's sovereign, he knows when it is, but he's giving us some, apparently some ownership in the timing of his coming. Thought-provoking, isn't it? That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with this promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness, or the home of righteousness. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless 
blameless and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. Just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him, he writes the same way in all his letters, speaking to them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do other scriptures to their own destruction. Therefore, dear friends, since you already know this, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless men and fall from your steadfastness or secure position, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. What a chapter. So rich in truth. And <laughs> I, I thought, you know, John, maybe you're a little too ambitious trying to address this chapter. We're going to try to distill it down and get you out of here before 3 o'clock this afternoon. <laughs> of course, you know, you're always free to leave before I'm free to finish. But no, we'll, we will not do that. So, basically, when we're looking at all this, there are some things that, from the human point of view, you would have reason, not you as a believer, but a person would have reason to be scared. Jesus talks about, in Matthew 24, men's hearts are, or in, in the Gospels, men's hearts will fail them for fear of the things which will come after. He's talking about a lot of serious bad stuff that's going to happen. And in this passage, when it talks about some of the realities that are going to be part of the day of the Lord, it's not fun stuff. I mean, it's all going to melt away. Wow. Uh, I don't, I hesitate to use this illustration, but it's a little bit like what you have seen in Raiders of the Lost Ark when those people are messing around with the Ark at the end. And of course, this is all Hollywoodized, but they get judged real fast. They just melt away. And you get that graphic CGI demonstration of how the elements can melt with fervent heat in ways that seemingly are unimaginable. So what are we going to walk away with from this passage? In trying to dis distill it out, I want to submit to you an outline to work with. Hold to the priority of God's Word. Peter starts the chapter with that. He says, I want to remind you of what the implication is. You already know. And if I tell you to hold fast to the Word of God, if you're a believer for any length of time, that should not be anything more than preaching to the choir. But we have a lot of people who are inviting us to doubt the truth of Scripture. And some of them can do it in very uh, persuasive ways. Peter had warned us in that previous chapter about false false teachers who would come in and actually succeed in deceiving people within the ranks of the church. He's talking about they're a danger within the group. So that means they must have been pretty persuasive in some ways. If you go to the wrong sites on social media, you can find people who can very artfully dispute the scriptures and, in a sense, scoff or mock them. Uh, the scoffers, by the way, have been around for a long time, but we'll get to that in a minute. So hold on to the reality of the Scriptures in terms of the claims that are made in Scripture themselves about the authority of the Word of God. What are the two classic passages? Some of you have already memorized them. For some of us, that may be an introduction. But 2 Peter chapter, or chapter 1, same epistle, he reminds them that, first of all, what we're going to tell you as the apostles are not made up myths. We're eyewitnesses. We, we saw what happened in Jesus' life and ministry. So we're, we're, we're uh, first-line witnesses. But right the next few verses, it says we have some translations will say a word of prophecy made more sure. I think the accurate translation is that we have even more than eyewitness testimony, the sure word of prophecy. That it stands solid even if you didn't have us for eyewitnesses, as good as that is, anchoring us in the fact that we need to hold to the truth of the word of God the priority of it, if you will. He says, men of God did not uh, do this on their own, but they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And it's the same word, that verb, verbiage there is used in the wind filling the sails of a boat in those days. That's the way they were propelled. And they were carried along by the Holy Spirit in writing what they, what they wrote. And Second Timothy tells us that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, 2 Timothy 3.16 sounds a little bit like John 3.16, doesn't it? So if you haven't memorized it, you at least have a memory hook to know where to find the address. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, or theopneustos means actually God-breathed. Sounds a lot like 2 Peter chapter 1, doesn't it? 
and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the person of God may be thoroughly equipped for all good works. Now, somebody might say, just to play the devil's advocate, well, isn't that uh, self-affirming? The scriptures are telling us that the scriptures are good. Yes, and the scriptures have a right to because of the authority that was pinned there, but it has reinforcement in the fact that the scriptures are what they say they are in terms of their accuracy. When it comes to history, when they speak about history, it's accurate. When the scriptures speak about science, it's accurate. When the scriptures speak about prophecy, oh boy, we got a great case for that. Remarkable accuracy and precise fulfillment. If you just take the prophecies about the person of Jesus Christ, it's amazing how accurate they are. You've got Psalm 22 about the details of his crucifixion. Matthew and Micah 5, 2 about the actual place where he's going to be born. Years ago, somebody uh, uh, wrote a book called The Passover Plot. And he basically said, Jesus, would just, he just arranged his life to fulfill these prophecies. Think, hmm, interesting. He arranged where he was going to be born? Right, right, right. He arranged to hang on the cross and be tortured in ways we don't understand? Right, right. People are so desperate to mock or scoff at the truth of God's word that we need to be resolved in our hearts not to be scared in the sense of being intimidated by the scoffers that we're going to talk about here a little bit more, but to be anchored in the truth of the word of God. And in that way, be prepared for the attacks of the enemy, the lies that are there to deceive you and try to destroy your faith. You with me? Okay. So the first thing is hold to the priority of God's word. And right now you may say, yeah, 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 I'm with you. But when you are being attacked by the scoffers, who we're going to talk about now, you might find yourself surprisingly unnerved by some of the seemingly persuasive arguments that can come on social media sites. Uh, kids that are going off to college could be mesmerized by a very charming professor who's, who's entertaining and, and can just be so persuasive in the way they artfully make claims that would say, you know, you don't, you don't really need to believe in the, the myths of Scripture. You, you're far too uh, sophisticated and enlightened to, to kind of bind into what you may have been taught by your parents or Sunday school, whatever it is. It could be very, very dangerous. And that's why the Scriptures say, as in Romans 12, too, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Implication is, it's dangerous out there. Don't be scared or intimidated. Be prepared. So, the second thing is, along with holding to the priority of, of God's word, is beware of the perversity of scoffers. Scoffers have been around for a long, long time. Psalm 1 is the classic passage in the Old Testament where it says, Blessed is the one who does not walk in the... Uh, who does not uh, uh, follow the counsel of the ungodly doesn't walk in the way of the sinners and get so comfortable, I'm paraphrasing it, that they wind up sitting in the seat of the scorners, implied that there's a danger of going down the slippery slope. But by contrast, his delight or hers is in the law of the Lord, and that's where he meditates day and night, and then tells us about the blessings that come from that. But the scoffers were there in that passage, which was written about 1000 B.C., the scoffers also were there on Golgotha when they mocked Jesus. Ah, he saved others. Let him come down and save. He can't even save himself. Let him come down from the cross, and then we'll believe in him. Classic scoffing, mocking at the foot of the cross that was there to save these who chose to be unbelievers and mockers rather than saved. And now it's here, but the scoffing here, he says, is going to take a, a relatively newer form, and that is the focus is going to be on questioning the actual return of Christ. In chapter 2, it says they deny the false teachers the Lord who bought them, which is a really thought-provoking statement. So if they're denying the Lord who bought them or his deity, it only stands to reason that eventually they're going to deny the expectation of his literal return. In spite of the fact that in Acts, written considerably earlier, uh, <laughs> the angels say, don't stand here gawking. The same Jesus who you see taken up from you is going to come in similar manner like you've seen him go, visibly and personally. He's coming back, guaranteed. What was it, men's warehouse? You're going to like the way you look, I guarantee it. <laughs> You're going to like the way Jesus looks as a believer, I guarantee it. 
But beware of those scoffers who are going to be there and can be very persuasive. Now, you might say, you know, thankfully, I'm not having to deal with scoffers in my life. People who don't believe, at least they know what I believe, and they're polite about it. Well, that may be true. But scoffing can be, as we said, very subtle. Years ago, do you remember when the first fish bumper stickers came out? And do you know what the fish stands for? It's an ancient Christian symbol. It's a fish, and in Greek, it's ichthus, and each letter of the Greek word for fish, ichthus, is a declaration of a Christian confession of faith. Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. Now, you may not have known that. Some of you do, some of you didn't. So what comes along shortly thereafter? Somebody decides to get real cute and put little feet on the bottom of the fish to make it look like it's an amphibian coming out of the primordial waters in an evolutionary poke in the eye to Christians about something that's a serious symbol of their confession of faith. Some of them would say, oh, come on, can't you take a joke? They're mocking you. They're mocking our faith. They may say, oh, come on, it's a joke. Just don't take it too seriously. There are some things about which we can't do anything else but take it seriously. The Bible tells us in Ephesians 5, beware of humor that's inappropriate or jestings which are not convenient. And sometimes, this is uncomfortable, and I don't mean to poke anybody here in the eye, but I thought there are times when I've had to be on guard for somebody throwing out a joke that really was inappropriate about something that's sacred to me. And sometimes you'll see it coming so fast you're not even ready for it. Do we laugh at it? Do we just go along with the crowd and then later feel guilty? I laughed at something I should never have laughed at. Or do we keep a straight face and just indicate without a word saying, not funny. They don't have to preach at them. They'll get the message. We see it uh, in social media where people really let down their guard. Civil conversation can go right out the window in chat lines. Oh, people get so ugly. Christians can get ugly on chat lines. And then they're freer to say what's really deep down in their hearts. So the mocking is there, whether it's in your face personally with somebody you know or just in what we're exposed to. So we should not be intimidated by it. Don't be scared. Be prepared. Third, in addition to holding to the priority of God's word and being aware of the perversity of scoffers, number three, we need to recognize, and I would say to you, even rejoice in the truth that they reject in this passage. Several things that they actually reject. And Peter goes through it. He said in the first, first three, first of all, you must understand that the scoffers are going to come and following their desires, challenging the prospect of his coming. And they're going to say, ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation, and they deliberately forget the following. So you can even say that they're questioning the creation story itself, but most notably, they're completely ignoring the, uh, the account of the flood of Noah. They just, just, everything just, since the beginning, it's just been uniformity, more or less. Just what we see today is basically what was going on in the past. And he said that they are choosing to ignore the evidence to the contrary. So we are invited then to reaffirm, to reaffirm the evidence to the contrary, namely God's activity in the past. According to Scripture, things have not always gone on as always since the beginning of creation. In fact, when God created... I'd say it's inescapable that we recognize he created a mature creation. I mean, who's going to believe that God created Adam and Eve in diapers? (laughs) Who's going to be there to take care of them? The chicken and the egg? I'm sorry, I'm so simple-minded. I think it's a no-brainer. It's the chicken first. If you got the egg first, who's going to incubate it? Of course he gave us the chicken first. What's so hard about that? Of course, I may be just too simple-minded. Pointing out that when God did this, the, the, the Psalm 33 says, He spoke and it was done. He commanded it to it fast. Do I sound like a special creation person? Yeah. <laughs> and by contrast, you, the people who were holding to this scoffing, and by the way, I realize that there are serious Christians who believe in theistic evolution. I'm not making that a test of fellowship, but I'll speak for myself. When the plain sense makes sense, seek no other sense. When I read Genesis, it's, to me, it's, it's special creation. And we start with a real couple, Adam and Eve, who were created out of the dust of ground. And at that point, they became animate because that's when he breathed into them the breath of life. 
And that's when God became a living soul. If you th still think theistic evolution is a better harmony of it all, that's between you and God. It's not a test of fellowship, but that's where I'm standing, and I want to encourage you to think about it too. So they're ignoring the fact that there was a big cataclysm in Earth's ancient history. In fact, the world that, then, that was then overflowed, the Greek word is the word from which we get cataclysm. Really interesting, isn't it? And if we take the Noahic flood as really a global flood, <laughs> that's a cataclysm. I mean, I've seen what water can do in local floods. And if I think about a flood that's many times uh, uh, more powerful and the hydraulic, uh, the, uh, the, not the hydraulic, but the, the water effects of incredibly thousands of tons of moving water, what it can do in a short amount of time. I don't even, I can't even comprehend that. So when I look at something like the Grand Canyon, I don't need millions of years for the Grand Canyon to get there. I can say, there's a lot of evidence that's just as good, if not better, that that took place as a result of the flood. In fact, we have creation sources that will take you on raft trips through the Grand Canyon and point out the scientific, geological evidence to say, this is from Noah's flood. But when they try to introduce a book in the gift shop, whoa, to, to, to present that viewpoint, no go. And I think several of you by now have been, I won't ask you to raise your hands, have been back to Kentucky to see the Ark and the Creation Museum. And every one of you that's done that, you've been really impressed. And Mark and I are saying, I think we need to go too. <laughs> so it's just, it's amazing what can be there to reinforce your understanding of the credibility of the biblical account of Earth's history, that it isn't all uniform. There were cataclysms in the past that hugely changed the realities of the earth as we know it today. And so is that just a theological technicality? No, because <laughs> the ones who are saying <clears throat> they reject this reality are the ones who are also rejecting either intentionally or subconsciously the needed implications of accountability. Jesus says, as it was in the day in Matthew 24, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the coming of the Son of Man. He's tying these connections together. We need to learn from the past in order to be prepared for the future. Don't be scared. Be prepared. I think a good way to put it that I think is helpful is from the biblical point of view, instead of the, the present as we see things being the key to the past, assuming that what we see today in terms of erosion, and if I can even be so bold as to say, in the terms of radioactive rates of decay, assuming they've always been the same, versus what God could have done to accelerate a lot of things in the past through cataclysmic dynamic forces we don't even begin to comprehend today. It's quite a bit different. So that instead of the present being the key to the past, according to Scripture, the past is the key to the present. I think we need to understand that. Again, this is not a test of fellowship. It's just, it's just challenging us to make sure we think things through in terms of are we thinking consistently with the truth of Scripture that has been many, many times verified in different ways. Don't be intimidated. Be prepared. All right? So the activity of God in the past, then also the character of God in the present. Because what is, what is Peter saying here? He said uh, in verse 6, or verse 8, don't forget this one thing, dear friends, in response to those who are saying, well, he hasn't come so far, so he's never coming. That with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. Time is not a big deal to God. He's not constrained by time. He's not slow in keeping his promise. What promise is this? That the Lord's coming back, that there's going to be the day of the Lord and Christ's return as some understand slowness, but rather he is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So that's why we say the character of God addressed in the present, they ignore that because they don't even believe in that there's a coming that's being seemingly delayed. Peter explains this is all in keeping with the character of God. He's not in a hurry because he's not constrained by human timetables. Hey, let's face it, we've been waiting 2,000 years. But I think, I, I'm convinced he's coming back, and I hope you are too. But he's not in a hurry. Jesus in his earthly ministry gives us classic illustrations of that. When Mary and Martha say, Lazarus is sick, come quickly. What does he do? 
He takes his sweet time about it. And I don't say that irreverently because he had his own timetable. He was not constrained by human urgencies because Jesus had something much bigger in mind than just healing Lazarus. He's got something very big in mind by seemingly waiting. I mean, he is waiting, and there's a reason why he's waiting. He's being patient. That's in his character, which reminds me of one of my favorite passages in Scripture. I think I've already quoted it last month. Psalm 145, where it says, The Lord is gracious. He's merciful. He's slow to what? Anger. But he's abundant in what? Loving kindness. And one way or the other, it says even so much that he is good to all. The fact that he puts up with any of us in the human race, he's good to all of us because we all deserve to be toast outside of Jesus. So that character of God in the present is revealed in terms of his patience and his compassion because he doesn't want anybody to perish. All should come to repentance. Now this, this doesn't mean it's a violation of his sovereignty. It shows God's desire God takes no pleasure in the, in the death of the wicked. Hell is prepared for the devil and his angels, but he's not going to violate our freedom of choice. So he's patient, he's compassionate, but the promise is going to be fulfilled, so that means God is faithful. And that's one of the, the classic qualities that's repeated again and again in the Old Testament, his, his faithfulness and his loving kindness. People would try to say, oh, the Old Testament's all about law. You know, it's a harsh God. Up here, it's all about grace. You've got plenty of judgment passages in the New Testament and plenty of beautiful passages about God's faithfulness and loving kindness in the Old Testament. We don't want to do this law of grace thing because that doesn't treat God's character fairly in terms of the consistency of it. Yes, we had the law in the Old Testament. Don't misunderstand me. And grace in Jesus Christ. But to, to make a dichotomy that we had a different God in the Old Testament from the New Testament, that's tragic error. So when you see the character of God in terms of his faithfulness to a promise that's going to be kept, patience and, patience and compassion in terms of waiting, and wisdom in the timing of it, just like he had wisdom in the timing of the delay in coming to Lazarus' rescue. One of Michael's favorite professors at Ecola Bible College would often say when he was teaching that book, he said, you know, God is smart. I like that. God is smart. He knows what he's doing. I have to admit, there are times I think, God, what are you doing in this situation? Why are you letting this happen? Or how come you didn't come and fix this situation? God is smarter than I am. He knows some things that I don't know. He has a bigger picture in mind, and it's always, ultimately, to our benefit. Can't escape Romans 8.28 here. Can we all things work together for good? to those called according to his purpose, those who love the Lord. So the character of God in the present and then the plan of God for the future. So in this subcategory of saying we need to recognize what the scoffers overlook, number one, the activity of God in the past, the character of God in the present, the plan of God for the future. And that is new heavens and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. And uh, that vividly described by Peter and repeated. What does he say? The elements are going to melt with fervent heat. Now, I know I used this illustration previously. Michael probably wishes I would forget it. But some of you haven't heard it yet, so those of you who had, bear with me. He was about four or five years old when I preached this passage many, many years ago, shortly after the biblical flood occurred. Uh, <laughs> I'm getting old. And we're coming home from church. And he remembers his daddy preaching from this passage. And in his little four- and five-year-old mind, he's thinking, wow, that's heavy. So in the back seat as we're driving home, I hear this quiet voice say, Daddy, when are the elephants going to melt with fervent heat? <laughs> in a child's mind, that's big enough. That's about all you could comprehend. But the scriptures are revealing to Peter what God's going to do that only God can do, because in Colossians it says Christ holds together the very elements that are going to fly apart, and the whole thing's just going to... How that happens is way beyond me and way beyond uh, my comprehension. Anything that could be a scientific explanation, but it says it's going to happen. He's going to make all things new. And this new heavens and earth are going to be the environment in which righteousness dwells. Are we overflowing with righteousness in our environment today? No, even those who don't hold to anything biblical 
They want what? Justice. They want economic justice. They want, or you may be part of it. I mean, I'm not trying to be a them and thus, but everybody has a hankering for justice or their understanding of righteousness. And God says, I'm going to take care of that in ways that you can't even comprehend right now. It's going to put it together in a way that it runs beautifully. And in that reality of God's character there, both his righteousness is revealed and his, his omnipotence to be able to be able to do it. As I get older, I realize that from one way or the other, I'm not as capable of doing even things that I was capable of doing earlier, like changing my own oil. If I get underneath there and try to unscrew the, uh, the, uh, the drain plug and stuff, my eyesight focus isn't right. It's either too close or it's too far. I'm going to get oil on my face. I'm becoming increasingly aware of my human limitations. As I said previously, the old Beatles song has new meaning for me. I'm not half the man I used to be. But God has none of those limitations. He's omnipotent. He can do it all, and he will. So that plan of God for the future is something that we need to recognize. He is on the throne. He's going to get it done in his timing. And we can even rejoice in that because Peter says, we can look forward to new heavens and the earth. People who think like the earth is my mother and this is all that there is, that's not good news. It's like it's going up in smoke, you know? And, and there's nothing forward to look, nothing for us to look forward to. But as a believer, we realize the best is yet to come. So we can look forward to that with rejoicing because of the fact that God's going to make it all right in the end. And by His grace, we're on the winning team. Okay? Not, not anything to be haughty about, just everything to be grateful about. So, hold on to the priority of God's Word. Beware of the, the perversity of scoffers. Recognize and rejoice in the truth that they reject, but you can affirm, and namely what we've talked about. And finally, recognize God's prescription in the meantime. So, in light of all this, and then we don't even have time to take in more than just a comment that Peter recognizes that Paul's writings are part of the Scriptures. He said some of it's pretty hard to understand. He probably was thinking about the book of Romans, which we think was written about 10 or 15 years earlier, and some of it's pretty, pretty uh, you know, abstract theological argument. It's all solid, but it's, uh, it's, not, it's not readily hands-on for the average reader, so you've got to do some real thinking. And it's there, and God's Holy Spirit will guide us. But he recognizes that it's the kind of Scripture that can be easily twisted by the unlearned people. In fact, Shakespeare, many, many years ago, he said, what damned error exists. I'm not swearing, I'm quoting. <laughs> but some sober brow will bless it with a text. We got that going on with cults today. They'll take the Scriptures, but they'll twist it in a way that isn't accurate with the truth of Scripture when you compare it with comparing it. So the prescription is, I'll, I'll distill it to two, two uh, things at the end here. He talks about making sure that you're walking in godliness and holiness. One commentator says, uh, the hope of the second coming should lead to holy living. The look of hope should lead to holy living. That's good, isn't it? If we really are taking seriously the fact that Christ is going to return, we want to make sure our household's in order so that we don't have to be ashamed at his coming in a spiritual sense, not being caught with our pants down, if I can be so down to earth. We're part of his family, but we don't want to be embarrassed when our Lord comes back and our household is in, in terms of our stewardship, is in disarray. We've been guilty of sloppy living and sloppy thinking, and we're not really spotless and blameless in terms of our stewardship. We're righteous, perfectly righteous in our position with Christ. But if we live in a way that is characterized by disobedience, then there's going to be disciplinary actions that take place because just like parents with kids, you never stop loving them. They're always going to be your son or daughter. But if they step out of line, they better get back in line or else there may be even something so old-fashioned as applying the Board of Education to the seed of knowledge. <laughs> so you know, keep those concepts in balance. And he's admonishing them to make sure that they don't slip there. Now, what about this hastening of his coming? Let's just take a moment to camp on that because I'm, go I'm going back a little bit. But there's just so many good, thought-provoking things in this passage. It's in the context of 
He's, he's, uh, God is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. So I think one escapable conclusion about how we can hurry, if you will, the coming of the Lord, not in terms of him saying, oh, no, i got to hurry because now you're doing something. He's got it all figured out. But from our perspective, it can come sooner rather than later if we do something in keeping with the context of this passage. And what is that? The fulfillment of the Great Commission. This gospel will be preached unto all the world, and then what will happen? The end will come. So I think that's an inescapable part of the conclusion that we can, in a sense, from the human point of view, hurry the second coming if we do what Jesus called us at the end of his first coming. I think there's also something else in here that I'm not going to, it's not going to be a hill that I'm going to die on, but in the context here, Paul is, uh, uh, Peter is warning them about the dangers of people who bring in false teachings and that can derail you. So at the end here, if we use NIV, the conclusion is in verse 17, therefore, dear friends, since you already know this, be on your guard that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless men and fall from your steadfast position. He's talking to who? Believers. He says, don't let these people trip you up, rob you of your crown of rewards for good stewardship, cause you to become shipwrecked in terms of your faith. Let's face it, we all know people who started out seemingly as solid believers, and they're on the rails. I mean, they're off the rails. They're on the skids, mixing my metaphors here. We can't ignore the fact that there are people who fall away from the faith. You come away with two questions. Well, they were never saved to begin with, or, or they are saved, but they, they're shipwrecked, and God's going to have to discipline them and bring them back. You carve that out however you want to, but the reality is he's warning about the dangers of apostasy, which we are told again and again in scriptures that it'll take place. Don't be scared, but be prepared, lest you fall from your own steadfastness, the scriptures would say. So that I think in that hastening of his coming, it could be that Peter is saying, because the passage says he's, uh, he's patient toward you. Why would God need to be patient toward you if he's talking to believers? Could it be that maybe he's warning them about the fact that some of you are, are being influenced, intimidated by the false teachers? And God's giving you time to get your act together so that you don't fall into the need to perish physically. We have repeated passages in Scripture where it says there's a sin unto death. That's talking about physical death, not eternal death. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, uh, you need to clean up this immorality in your church. He said, I've already prayed uh, and delivered this person's body to Satan that the soul may be saved. Ooh, that's heavy stuff. Uh, so we got, and then it says also, because some of you are being sloppy in the way you're showing a lack of reverence for the Lord's Supper, some of you are sick, and some of you even sleep. Who's he talking to? Believers. That you can perish physically if we stay sloppy and out of line. I'm not trying to scare us. I'm just trying to say, God takes sin seriously. And he may be holding off in that passage for the sake of believers to say, I'm going to give you time to get your act together so that you don't perish physically any more than the people who are unbelievers are going to perish eternally. Something to think about. But so in both those ways, perhaps, because I'm going to try to be humble about this, we can hurry the return of Christ by fulfilling the Great Commission and making sure that we are a people who are practicing holiness in our lives and making our witness for the Great Commission credible to an unbelieving world. Because we don't want them to see... <laughs> You're just as bad as the guy over here who claims to be an agnostic or an atheist. Do me a favor and don't do me any favors. You've got nothing to, to offer me. You're, you're a mess yourself. That shouldn't be. Yeah. We're not saying we're going for perfection, but we need to be authentic and have a credible witness with our kids at home as well as the people we're around in the, in the larger world. That leads us to the second part. Be on your guard so that you don't be carried away by the error of the wicked but rather, there's the positive part. I always want to end it on a positive note. Grow, what? In the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Don't stay baby Christians, if I can paraphrase it. Grow up. Uh, I uh, haven't been a pastor for many, many years. 
I'm director of Ecola Bible College and having to deal with Christian parents. I've been so grieved by the reality that some people can be Christians for many, many years and they're still very, very immature. That's not the way it was meant to be. So, a word to the wise. I'm not your judge, not mine, but each of us should examine ourselves to see whether we be in the faith in terms of are we holding to the reality of letting the presence of Christ shine through our lives or are we just like the clear all Christian, uh, only God knows for sure, or if someone said if they arrested you for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? That's not where we should be, is it? No, we need to be credible and distinctive in, a, in, in the right sense of the word. So it's growing in the grace and knowledge. There's two parts that I think are thought-provoking. I'll try to hurry through this. Growing in grace, I believe, is growing in the appreciation of God's grace expressed to us through Jesus Christ. Now, we all know that we're saved by grace through faith, not of ourselves. It's the gift of God, not of worthless that anyone should boast. But the more we appreciate the fact that we're wretched sinners outside of the saving work of Jesus Christ, then we can truly more deeply with time say, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Yeah. Amen. The other part is we should have a deeper appreciation not only for the grace in our lives, but for the responsibility of expressing it to those around us. Ephesians 4.32 has a very, very relevant verse that may be familiar to some of us. Be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. That's other believers, <laughs> as well as hopefully people in our own family. Even as God, for Christ's sake, has already forgiven you. And I cringe when I hear stories repeatedly about people who are active in ministry. They may have had credibility to people, you know, in the church or in their parachurch ministry, but at home... They were wretched sinners in the way they treated members of their own family. I think of a dear friend who's now gone to be with the Lord, and her mother was uh, an active believer, stout, you know, warrior for the Bible, active in, in ministry. But she was an abusive mother to her child, who even into the closing years of her life, still had those memory scars about a mother who was not the kind of mother God wanted her to be. James says, we... We bless God, and with the same mouth, we curse people. Brethren, these things ought not to be. So I want to appeal to each of us to make sure we seek honestly to practice our Christianity at home with our spouses and our children, certainly as the first place. Don't let our children grow up thinking, my mom and dad, they were pillars of the church, but at home, I got nothing but bad memories. I think I told you about a relative who's a very successful businessman. We had lunch one time, and I said, tell me what it was like for you growing up in a pastor's home, because that's where he grew up. He said, I don't want to talk about it. That's, he's, he, he, he carries, I think, the deep hurt from something that I'm not real privy to all these years, which is, which is to me, a very strong reason why he just rejects the Christian faith. You don't want that to happen to your kids. I know you don't. So if you're in those parenting years, be careful. Do not provoke your children to wrath, but raise them in the nurture and admission of the Lord. So that's the grace part. What about the knowledge part? Uh, grow in the knowledge uh, of, of, of Jesus Christ. Let's have a little fun here for a minute. Greek grammar. Anybody here love grammar? You know, I mean, you really enjoyed that. Some of you are gluttons for punishment like I was. I love grammar. In Greek, we have objects of prepositions, just like we do in English. Only in Greek, we don't have the word of or f uh, of. So when it says the knowledge of Jesus Christ, you can interpret it grammatically two ways. And, and, the, and the term in Greek, if you want to get flowery, is it's either a subjective genitive or it's an objective genitive. Doesn't that just thrill your heart? <laughs> what it basically means is, is that the knowledge that comes from Jesus Christ or is the knowledge that is directed toward Jesus Christ. Well, it is knowledge that comes from Jesus Christ, but let's, let's just even take a little more of a nuance. Is it the knowledge of Jesus Christ relationally, or is it knowledge about Jesus Christ in terms of content? 
Somebody said both. You heretic. <laughs> no, you're on to something. And I'll use an illustration that I think legitimizes that. Because in, in hermeneutics for interpretation, there's one right interpretation. But I'm coming to the increasingly, increasing conviction that there could be a couple of facets of the interpretation that do not contradict each other, but they enrich it. The down-to-earth illustration I'll use is just about every Thanksgiving, my wife makes two pies. <clears throat> One of them is pumpkin. And all due respect, Matt, my wife makes a good pumpkin pie. All due respect to Costco. And we have stooped <laughs> sometimes. To... <laughs> but they're so big. <laughs> no, they're good pies. But she also makes another pie that some of you are going to say, seriously? It's called prune whip pie. How many of you have heard of prune whip pie? Yeah, see, you're, bless you over there. This recipe came to my wife's mother through the mother of Senator Mark Hatfield. Anybody remember Senator Mark Hatfield? Some of you old enough? So it's, it's, it's in the family. And, and if you've never tasted it, don't be skeptical. You've you you, you got to try it to really appreciate it. You know, it's, I know some people think, um, prunes, that's what keeps the nation on the move. But this, this, this is a... You're better for puns today than you were last month when I said, it's not the apple in the tree, it's the pear in the ground. You were all asleep. <laughs> not all of you. <laughs> but, but it's delicious. Where am I going with this? Michael and I have decided we don't have to choose between the two. We'll just take a slice of each, and then we'll repent later for <laughs> eating too much. So we like mom's pumpkin pie, we like her prune whip pie. I think... I don't know who the brother was back there, but knowledge about Jesus Christ, that's the content of the written word. We need that. We need to grow in our understanding of who Jesus is. And where do we get that understanding? It's from the word. But also we need to grow in our relational knowledge of Jesus in our walk. That's both. There's no contradiction. It's just two facets of the same truth. We need to be growing up. And I think that's why Peter says in 1 Peter 2.2, 2, he says, Desire the sincere milk of the word. Why? That you may grow thereby. So there we have the bottom line to all of this. Let's not be intimidated by the scoffers. Let's be prepared for them. Let's not be scared by the prospects of the fact that everything's going to melt because God's going to take care of us. <laughs> We're not going to be destroyed on all that. In fact, it says God has not called us to wrath but to the obtaining of salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. We don't have to be afraid. The best is yet to come. So we're not to be intimidated or scared. We're to be prepared. And the way he's saying here at the end of this chapter, be prepared by being on your guard and by growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Is that something we can do? Absolutely. Through the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit, God doesn't ever instruct us in something we can't do. And we can never say, oh, if I fail to do this, the devil made me do it. Uh-uh. Doesn't work. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. The only difference is, is our heart's desire to be the kind of people who God called us to be and enabled us to be through the redeeming work of grace in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So as we come to a close here, I just want each of us to privately examine our hearts to see, as the scriptures say elsewhere, whether we be in the faith in terms of holding on to the truth of Scripture and not being uh, intimidated by the scoffers, and also if we're examining ourselves to be in the faith in terms of the practice of what we profess to believe, that we don't have this terrible disconnect. I'm not talking about perfection. We're talking about authenticity. Is that where our heart's desire is? If you sense in your heart that God is convicting you about something as we come to the close, I want you to be honest with the Lord and repent and clean house where it needs to be cleaned. And in that sense, who knows, you may be helping to hasten the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. As well as in our desire to say, Lord, give me a consistent burden for the lost people in my family, my circle of influence. It doesn't mean you're all going to go out and be Billy Grahams. But the least we can do is pray for those people. I'm not asking you to raise your hand. Do you pray for your neighbors? Do you pray for those loved ones in your circle of relatives? Or do you just moan and groan that they're always argumentative, they don't want to hear anytime you try to put in a good word for Jesus? Be persistent and pray without ceasing. And that prayer needs to include 
that God's Spirit will bring loving conviction to those whose hearts seem to be so hard right now, but he knows how to break them down. If he can knock Paul literally and figuratively off his horse on the road to Damascus, you don't have anybody in your family that's intimidating to God. So pray, if anything else. And wherever opportunity comes, you're not pushing yourself in, but make sure that we redeem the time and putting in a good word for Jesus wherever he gives us the opportunity. Can we do that? In our witness and our walk, we can be hastening the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ for which we are to look forward. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for the riches of your word. We thank you, Lord, for the Holy Spirit who enables us to understand the riches of your word. And as I have uh, not prayed this morning, but certainly it's there, you know my heart, that your, your servant has rightly divided your word of truth and that your Holy Spirit prompts each of us to readily receive the truth of your word of truth as it needs to be applied to our personal situation in terms of are we, are we walking in terms of, of, uh, of what we're called to in the scriptures because at the beginning of this same, same book, <laughs> Second Peter chapter 1, that grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. How? Through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Therefore, moving down to verse 10, Lord, we agree with the scriptures where it says, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fall. And you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, let that be the holy ambition of each one of us, teacher and recipient today, that Jesus Christ can more readily be all in all, and that we can be more clearly conformed to the image of your dear Son in a way that eludes grace and truth to those around us. In Jesus' name, amen. See, I think the uh, worship team is going to be coming up here at the end, are they not? And we want to invite you as we come to the close, and that Pastor Chris, if you want to say something here, that's up to you. But you are invited, Pastor Chris may repeat that, if you need prayer regarding anything that God is speaking to you about in light of this teaching today, be sure to come up and uh, have a word of prayer, counsel if necessary with Pastor Chris, one of the elders. Uh, just don't, don't quench the spirit, don't grieve him in any way that he's speaking to you because he loves us dearly and he wants the best for each one of us to experience the abundant life that Christ came to give us. Amen. Amen. Thanks, John. Um, yeah, as John said, we're, ju we're just going to have a response time like we typically do when our prayer team will be around the room. You know, as I was listening, uh, as John is teaching, and I just, what the Lord was just reminding me of is it's, I always try to think of like from the standpoint of like, all right, Peter's writing this letter. He's writing to somebody, you know, what are those people dealing with? Because there's a reason he's writing what he's writing. And I think that that particular chapter is just another good example of like people struggling with discouragement. Um, I mean, I don't know about you. I, I never struggle with discouragement as a Christian. So uh, I'm just always happy. But yeah, it, that's something that we all struggle with often, right? And there's tons of different reasons. And in this case, I think these people are struggling with, you know, here they are trying to witness to people and tell them the greatest news they could ever hear. And those people are scoffing at them and just saying, yeah, right, whatever. You know, this stuff didn't even happen that you're saying or you keep seeing Jesus is going to come back. Where When's this going to happen? And I just think of how, you know, that's, that's one of the many things that can discourage us in our faith. And, and he's just simply reiterating, guys, go back to the word. Everything God has said has happened, actually has happened. There's evidence of it. So therefore, everything that he says is going to happen is going to happen. His, his, his character is he wants to save people. That's actually why 
he seems to be taking a long time to come back because there's people to be saved still. So he's going to use what you're doing. It's going to produce fruit, whether you see it or not. So don't give up. Keep going. And everything he says that's going to happen, as far as him coming back, it, it's going to happen. And if you just keep focused, keep on striving to know him, allow him to change you and use you to be holy and godly, it's going to go by a lot quicker because your focus is on the finish line. That finish line is going to be approaching all the sooner. And I just think of them in my own life. Like when I'm busy for the Lord, that's exactly how it feels. Like I don't got time to be discouraged. I don't got time to listen to the enemy's lies. I'm just so focused. I mean, my, our marriage thrives best when we're both serving the Lord and focused. And, and you might say like, well, that's easy. You're a pastor. It's like, well, I didn't become a pastor until 70 years after, 17 years after I got saved. I, I just got saved and I served the Lord like as many as you guys do. I had a normal job. I served the Lord there. I served the Lord at church and the opportunities God gave me. And I can even go back to that time and say the same thing. Man, when I was focused on just, man, I'm just living for Jesus. I'm, I'm trying to take advantage of every opportunity he gives me to be a witness for him to my family, to the people I work with, to the people in my community, to the kids on the teams I'm coaching. Man, it's like my eagerness for his return grew and, and that light at the end of the tunnel was just always right there. Man, it's, it's coming. I'm, I can't wait for, to meet Jesus face to face. Amen? So maybe that's just an encouragement for some of us that are discouraged. Just keep going. Make sure your focus is in the right place and keep going. Amen? So if, that, if the Holy Spirit's speaking that specific thing to you, you, you needed to hear that today or something else John said, come up and get prayer. Be humble enough to come before God and go like, oh man, Lord, I, I, that's for me. And I, I, I am in that wrong frame of mind. I want, it, I want my mind right in the back in the right place on you and on your promises. And just fill me with your spirit so I can keep going, Lord, help me. But take advantage of this opportunity to respond because God doesn't, didn't bring you here today to leave the same. He brought you to be more like Jesus, focused on Jesus, leaving here in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Lord God, just meet us in this time. We thank you so much for that word. Thank you for that reminder, Lord, of the truth of what's to come and of what you're doing right now, what you have done, that because of what you've done, we can be absolutely confident in what you are doing and what you're going to do, Lord. We have no reason to ever doubt it. So be with us now. Meet us in this time. In Jesus' name, amen.